everybody. My name's Peter McMillan, the Executive Officer at NT Shelter. I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting today from Larrakia lands, pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and to any other First Nations people who may be watching on. This is Sharing the Couch. It's a series where we get to talk to a lot of interesting people from industry, from university and academia, from design, from the homelessness system, all different aspects of professions, people that are working at the front line trying to make a difference to end homelessness through better housing outcomes for many Australians. Today, we've got another great uh, uh, participant, David Pearson. I'll introduce you uh, to David shortly. But if you're enjoying these podcasts or you want to see more of them, please check out our special channel uh, on our YouTube channel, NT Shelter's uh, YouTube channel, and uh, you can download any of the uh, previous episodes. I think we're up to about our tenths now, so um, we're having a lot of fun doing them. I hope you're enjoying them as well. So today, it's my pleasure to introduce David Pearson. David is the CEO of the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness. He recognises that ending homelessness is possible and that homelessness is not normal or something we should accept. He has worked towards this goal in a range of roles in the community, government, university and philanthropic sectors, including currently as a CEO of the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness. Before this, he helped lead the establishment of the Adelaide Zero Project. David was a 2020 Kenneth Meyer Innovation Fellow and is currently an industry adjunct at the Australian Alliance for Social Enterprises at the Uni of South Australia. He's also a 2021 Churchill Fellow and a Senior Advisor for the Institute of Global Homelessness. David has a Bachelor of International Studies, a Bachelor of Media and First Class Honours in Politics and Public Policy from the University of Adelaide. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Bear. Fantastic. Uh, you've done a lot of interesting stuff, and I look forward to going through that in, in some detail in a minute. But I was intrigued to find out that you um, did senior school in Alice Springs. So, are you a true blue territorian at heart? Were you born here, or how did that all come about? Uh, I wasn't born there, but I did all my high school years in the territory. So, I did from, I think it was about, well, year four all the way through to year 12, and then did a gap year and then went to university in Adelaide. So I was originally born in Adelaide, but um, I spent most of my, you know, early years in in Alice Springs. What was it like? What are what are some of the memories from that time? Well, I loved it. Um, it was a great experience for me. In fact, my parents tried shipping me off to boarding school for year eleven, which I did go for that. But I was sort of like, well, I can either finish school or I can come back to Alice Springs because I just I love my school, I love my friends, I love the flexibility and. Um, it was a really positive experience for me. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's sort of like, you know, Alice Springs is a, a beautiful, beautiful place with amazing people, but it's obviously got its challenges. And um, growing up in an environment like that distilled in me a strong sense of um, my own commitment to social justice and that, um, you know, with people who have privilege, have an opportunity, an obligation really to give back and to support those who haven't been as lucky as yourself. And, um, that was a sort of value instilled in me from my parents, but also from my experiences growing up in Alice. Sure. Education obviously plays an important part um, in your life. And just uh, I read out before a number of qualifications that you've done. I don't know which order you did them, but um, what was the thinking when you when you left senior school and, and you went down to New <laughs> South Australia? What, what was driving you back in those days? Uh, I always really got 
interested in the media um, and communications and those sorts of things. And so I decided to do a media degree um, and then I took a year off. And in the gap year, I was sort of uh, running the uh, Alice Springs Pizza Haven and uh, the um, September 11th happened. And I just could not figure out why that happened. And, and you know, the, the media reporting of it just didn't provide any answers for me. And so I thought, right, well, I'm going to do an international relations degree and try and figure this out because they hate us isn't an answer that makes any sense to me. Um, and, and you know, I've, the, the, that really drove me into getting involved in politics, really, and the way in which ideology has an influence on us. And um, that came a little bit later for me when I got to university. But that was the sort of decision making. I really enjoyed media at, in high school and then decided to add on a double degree in international relations. I think that's that's amazing because uh, most of us uh, who are around, or I think everybody watching this would have been around in September 11 when that happened. Um, but I remember distinctly, my brother was living in, in Brooklyn at the time uh, when the thing happened. And, and a lot of people have stories and memories from that day, but I find it quite fascinating that you were kind of affected to that extent that you thought, well, I want to make sense of this and, and do something in that area. Yeah, well, I finished year 12 and then I went on and then I started my gap year. And at the beginning of my gap yeah. year, I went traveling and I went to yeah. the US and I went to New York right. and I was yeah. standing on top of the World Trade Center in January 2000. And then along came yeah. September in my gap year. It was pretty confronting, Absolutely. which is strange to talk about it now. I haven't talked about it for a while, but I literally just came back from New York again for the first time since then, mm. um, a couple of weeks ago to learn about homelessness. But yeah. we'll get to that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we will. So after, uh, tell us how you got So. You, I'll just read out so for, for the sake of uh, people watching on. You've been a um, policy advisor and senior advisor for quite a few, I guess, South Australian-based um, politicians, both federal and, and state. So you were in the office of Penny, Senator Penny Wong for a while, then um, the office of Premier of South Australia, um, the office of Mark Butler uh, as when he was Minister for Mental Health and Ageing, and then with the uh, office of the Premier, Jay Weatherall. Um, how did you get into politics? What was that? Um, how did that play out for you? Um, well, I going back to that theme, I did my international relations degree and then got to university and then the government decided to back the Bush's campaign to invade Iraq, which I thought was the worst thing we could possibly do in response to what had happened, um, completely unconnected and blah, blah, blah. So I got involved in student politics and um, participated in the No War movement and um you know, long story short, I ended up running for the student union, became the student union president. And after that year, um, uh, I got offered a role in Penny Wong's office. Mm. And um, 11 years, I think I added up for all, for that time in, in various offices. What uh, what did you learn from those 11 years? And, and I guess, what did how did that, I guess, what did you learn in the sense that you were able to then move into a different area at the Don Dunstan Foundation? Um, well, I learned the absolute power and influence that government can have over the lives of those that are less fortunate and that it is a hugely one of the most powerful vehicles we have in society and to change the world for a better place and that politics and government can have a massive influence on all of that. Mm. But I also I feel like I got a good experience in what the, the limits of that are as well. So, you know, give you two examples. Um, 
I worked for the mental health minister, Mark Butler, who's now the health minister. Uh, and we, you know, the election campaign where Julie Gillard got real got elected or re-elected, um, but mental health was made a big issue in that campaign. And so there was we, we knew that we needed to do something. And so Julie Gillard appointed Australia's first ever dedicated mental health minister, Mark Butler, and he appointed me as his senior mental health advisor. So in some ways I was Australia's first dedicated mental health minister's advisor but that's a long stretch um but long story short when we when we ran that we 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 designed a 10 billion dollar mental health package um and we went around the country and consulted on that and that was incredible and at the time i was like this is transformative this is going to change the way mental health is treated in australia and we spent 10 billion dollars and we barely touched the side of the problem like yeah. and it was a bit of a wake-up call for me i was like yeah we just we need sustained investments but it's the quality of the investments and then um and then really like the next sort of example of the limits of government power were when I was in Premier Jay Weatherall's office, I was his senior policy advisor and was really interested um, obviously in, in homelessness and, and had always had an interest in homelessness. And um, uh, the, the challenge that you've got there is that government's accountabilities are always very short term. They're always very like they have to be everything to everyone everywhere. And um, what you need is you need community to work with government and you need government to work with community if you're going to really solve a problem. Um, and that was that was really one of the key kind of lessons that I learned. And if community wants to go to government and get government to invest, we've got to have a pretty clear strategy or theory of change that says this is the outcome we're going to get for this, particularly in sort of human services. So I spent a lot of time trying to argue for more money into human service systems, whether that's health, education, child protection, you know, homelessness. And um, if you're just putting more money into a broken system, you're not going to get the outcomes. And, and politicians, you know, one of the worst sins in politics is to spend lots of money and get criticised for it, right? So mm -hmm. um, you, you've got to try and find a way to give confidence to government that they invest, they're going to get an outcome. Um, and, and that takes community to be organised and, and committed and rallied around a particular goal. And so these thoughts are sort of swirling around my head after I'd done about 11 years in politics and as you counted up and I thought, well, I'm going to make a jump and where am I going to make a jump to? I thought um, into a think tank to sort of put some of these ideas into practice and to organise community and, and that's where the opportunity to go to the Don Dunstan Foundation came up and Don Dunstan for you know, people in the Territory may not know, was a sort of very visionary um, South Australian Premier who really transformed the state uh, and... You know, so it was a, it was a great opportunity to move into that role. And uh, in terms of Don Dunson himself, he was a pretty big agent of social change, wasn't he? It's part of his legacy. Is that how he's regarded? Massively, like you know, he, yeah, um, on all sorts of fronts. Like he transformed the South Australian economy, society, culture. So he was a massive champion of the arts, massive champion of social justice. Um, equal rights, um, you know, he first premiered to recognise Aboriginal land rights, um, you know, a range of different things. Sometimes people say to me that um, getting, uh, I guess, change uh, and commitment to homelessness funding, for example, is hard because it's not a vote winner for people. And I'm not sure if that's true or not. I'm just interested in what you said before about having a theory of change and showing it would get better outcomes rather than doing things the same way and putting more into a fundamentally broken system. What are your thoughts on that? And I guess the other thing is, do you think politicians, uh, I guess, are really invested in this issue of homelessness and care about it enough to say, well, we need to do more? 
I'm thinking from your 11, from your think, 11 years um, within government. Those, yeah. I think both of those things that you just said can be correct. I think that homelessness isn't really a vote turner, um, but that doesn't mean that politicians don't care. And a lot of the time politicians get into politics because they care. In fact, yeah. most politicians, no matter what side of politics they're on, get into politics because they care. Um, it's then disagreement about what we should do and where ideology comes in things. But I, I do think, unfortunately, the reality is that most human services issues aren't vote turners. Um, there's only a few issues that actually people turn their votes on. Jobs, job security, national security, um, you know, uh, uh, health care access to it sometimes it's child protection sorry sometimes it's early childhood education but really you know entrenched issues like child protection um, homelessness very few elections are ever decided on those issues um, I don't think it's controversial to say that they're not actually the issues that decide elections in Australia and that's what a vote turner is mm. um, you know it was rare for mental health to be an election issue when I got the first role as you know working for a mental health minister um, that's less so now because um, we've we've really destigmatized mental health a lot in Australia and we've had amazing organizations like Beyond Blue and things like that. So um, but I, I do that none of that should be taken as a sort of um, you know glass half full kind of view of the world. I actually think politicians care. I think we can get communities to want to take action on homelessness, but we've got to get out of the sort of status quo that we're in of despondency, um, problems, broken systems, you know, yeah. you know, and I, I hate this phrase, but it's, it's, it gets you there. It's like poverty porn. Like yeah. let's just go and explore this story and we need to tell the stories of homelessness more. And somehow that's going to magically result in people caring more and we actually get the change we want. Well, people already care. What we need to do is convince them of the solutions that are out there that we can change the situation and that it's worthy of their investment, of their taxpayers' dollars, of their political capital, of their politicians. That's what we've got to do. Um, and talking about the problem and talking about the, the misery, um, I don't think is a theory of change that can work. Yeah, and there are a lot of uh, a lot of good reasons now uh, and a lot of good research that's been done to show that there are a whole range of benefits uh, economic and not just from a welfare perspective in, in ending homelessness and um, and and the benefits that it has that go beyond uh, a poverty or welfare issue alone, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I guess in a similar vein, it was interesting that in the last federal election, there's been some, um, some uh, I guess, views expressed that, you know, in the seat of Brisbane, that renting was an issue because a lot of people um, got behind a candidate who was saying we need to do something to address the problems for renters. But again, um, that's not to say that others don't feel that's an issue or see it as an issue, but what's the solution? That's probably the, the bit that's missing in terms of how do we address some of these challenging problems we have. Yeah, definitely. And I think like that there's a, there's a whole series of problems and a whole series of different solutions to the different problems, right? And it goes through everything from home ownership to housing affordability to rental affordability to, you know, homelessness generally and then even inside the homelessness box there's extra, extra boxes in there. And each one of those boxes that are all should be connected in this thing called a housing continuum, which is not, it's just a whole bunch of different problems lined up in a row. There's a different solution for each of them. Um, and we've got to be really clear about what the solution to each one is, because the, if, if we want to solve the problems, we need different solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And then you mentioned Don, the Don Donaldson Foundation was a think tank. Um, so, and you were the executive director there, executive officer, um, CEO, yeah. I think. So, what were some of the things that you did there, and how did that lead in towards you moving in, setting up, I guess, the Adelaide Zero Project and your work with the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness? 
Yeah, well, one of the things that um, we, we did when I got to the Nudson Foundation was we restarted a program called the Adelaide Thinkers in Residence Program. And the idea behind that was is that you bring experts from around the world to come to a place and visit and not just give a speech at a conference, but to spend some time and actually come back a couple of times and help us come up with a plan for changing the, the environment in that situation. So Adelaide had a Thinkers and Residents program over a number of years that focused on a whole range of things, live music, urban development, um, early childhood education, wellbeing. Um, and one of the most prominent and successful Thinkers and Residents that we brought out was a person called Roseanne Haggerty from Community Solutions, or at the time she was running Common Ground. And that was a, that was my first engagement in homelessness when she came out as a Thinker in Residence. And we we re-reduced homelessness in South Australia on the basis of all the recommendations and reports and the, re and, the, and the investment that the South Australian government made at a time when homelessness increased across the rest of the country because of those um, because of the work she did. And we set up a whole bunch of what they call common grounds and then common grounds are spread to the whole country and there's many of them over there. And around that time, a common ground alliance was created, which was later called the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness, unbeknownst to me at the time. But at the Dunstan Foundation, I, I restarted this Thinkers in Residence program. And um, one of the things we focused it on was homelessness again, because Roseanne had just come back to Adelaide to speak at a conference. And she, she shared with us at that conference the kind of really key lesson that she'd learned in the sort of 10 years or so that she'd left Adelaide. Um, and the key lesson was, is that if she just keeps building common grounds, it's not going to solve the problem. Like she built more and more common grounds across New York and the same people that have been on the street for 10 years or more or whatever was still there. And she's like, something's not working here. Mm -hmm. And they, they, even, they even ran a campaign called the 100,000 Homes Campaign where they got 100,000 new properties across the United States to get access for people who are chronically experiencing homelessness. And it was an incredibly successful campaign. They got the 100,000 homes. Everyone was cheering it, massively increased the, the amount of time that people were spending in housing and not recurring and those sorts of things. But when the data came out in the US, they found out that homelessness only really reduced by about 30,000 people, despite increasing the number of properties they had by 100,000. And she realised basically she was counting the wrong way. Rather than counting up to the output of housing people, you need to count down to the goal of ending homelessness. And, you know, she then worked with a bunch of communities to do that. They got 16 communities as of today that have ended homelessness for a particular cohort. And so she set all this out, this conference that I organised when I first joined the Don Dunstan Foundation and said, how you do this? You've already had successes. South Australia's been a real key leader on, on housing and homelessness matters for generations. And um, why not, why not do this? And I said, yeah, why not? And I got a bunch of homelessness sector organisations and housing providers and mental health providers together. And long story short, we created the Adelaide Zero Project. Wonderful. Uh, and, and what sort of, um, I, I guess, what sort of are the elements of a, of a ending homelessness yeah. project? And I think you refer to that as functional zero or advanced to zero. What are, what are the elements and what's the process involving? Yeah, um, so Advanced to Zero is the kind of campaign that we've kind of called. So there's a communities across Australia who were doing a lot of this work before the Adelaide Zero Project came along. So there was the Brisbane 500 Lives campaign or the Perth 20 Homes 20 Lives campaign and, and many communities did similar versions of that. And so Adelaide was just the first to count down and we learned a lot of all those other communities. But 
really, I guess, the advanced zero campaigns, the community of practice that we kind of have nationally now. And we encourage communities through that to create a zero project, which includes in it a goal to end homelessness, um, includes in it creating a by name list, a list of everyone who's experiencing homelessness, uh, and underneath that a whole bunch of other things around prevention and improvement and advocacy and blah, blah, blah. Um, but at the starting point, it starts around that goal. And if you're going to have a goal to end homelessness, you've got to be able to tell us what ending homelessness looks like and how you're going to measure that. And so what it looks like is pretty easy. It looks like rare, brief and non-reoccurring homelessness. Rare, that there's not much of it. Brief, that if someone has an experience of homelessness, that we're rapidly able to rehouse them and non-reoccurring so that they're not cycling back in and out of homelessness. So you kind of got that goal. That's what we're aiming for. I think most people can unite around that. Where it gets a bit more complicated is how do you measure that? Because if we want to make, you know, we can get absolute zero homelessness in, in you know, Alice Springs by next Friday. But the moment Monday comes around and two more people fall into homelessness, by definition, we're no longer at absolute and we've failed. So how do we have a measure over time rather than at a point in time that measures that goal of rare, brief and non-reoccurring? And that's where this concept of functional zero came in, that you can measure over time, are you sustaining that goal of rare, brief and non-reoccurring? So it doesn't mean absolute zero because you might have one or two people experiencing homelessness at any given time, but you need to be able to demonstrate your system can house all the people that are coming into it and there's less people coming in and so you've reduced it down to one or two people. Um, and that's what functional zero means. The sort of, you know, in a really basic way, supply equals is greater than demand or, you know, it's the, the technical definition of it is that your housing placement rate on average over a two-month period is greater than the inflow or the number of people coming into your system in that same period. Right. I know it's complicated, but at the end of the day, you need a, you don't need to understand how the technicalities of certain things are measured for you to understand that it's important that they are measured. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what functional zero is, and that's the really key part of it. Absolutely. So what changes when you have an advanced to zero project or towards zero project? What, what, what has to change to get progress on um, ending homelessness? Yeah, well, collecting the data and, and building a by name list is important, but that actually doesn't reduce homelessness. What reduces homelessness is the actions that communities take um, about improving the way their system operates based on what the data is telling them. Um, so understanding how many people there are changes the way we think about the problem and making sure we're setting a goal of ending changes the way we think about the problem. And if we want to end, then we've got to actually change the way we operate. We can't just be one service provider providing an amazing service and all around us is a system that's broken. So we, we get people coming through the front door and we send them out through the other door and we patch them up and we provide support for as long as we can. And then that's all we can do within the service delivery program that we have and the KPIs that we have. That's not going to help us end homelessness. All the amazing evidence-driven housing first programs in the world aren't going to end homelessness unless we solve the system as well. And we need to solve the system problems in a housing first way. We need to solve the system problems like collectively. It can't just be one agency. So that's kind of comes back to that lesson that I learned when I was in government, that government alone can't solve this. Government can't solve the problem of homelessness alone, even with all the money in the world. They need the sector to work with them. They need people to work with them. They need to build trust. You need community um, rallied around a common goal. Uh, and that's that's another kind of key component of a zero project is that it's not just about data, it's not just about a fancy measure like functional zero. It's about building community around a common goal and saying how are we all going to put our shoulder to the wheel of solving this problem. And what have been some of the, I guess, 
uh, emerging, I guess, success stories across Australia in that area because, as as is well known, everybody always says we need a lot more social and affordable housing, we need more stable housing. Uh, I guess in some communities too, there's limited uh, short-stay accommodation or temporary accommodation. Certainly that's the case in Northern Territory. But what what changes? I mean, do the communities basically come up with innovative ways to provide people into housing or, or what's the... What have been some of the success stories or elements of that? Yeah, so there's sort of range of examples across the system. So, like, you know, if you're thinking about getting people off the street and into housing, there's there's innovations there about getting access to housing in new and innovative ways. But there's also, like, looking back into the system and going, how do we stop people from falling into homelessness in the first place? And do prevention as it relates to rough sleeping homelessness, not prevention as it relates to everything, every form of human service delivery, all forms of homelessness, because the best kind of prevention is, you know, early childhood education, right? It's prevention to say when somebody's getting discharged from a correctional service facility, do they have an opportunity for housing post that? If not, how do we make sure we get that? And what role does the correction system have in that as opposed to just the homelessness system or the housing system? And again, for the health system and again, for the child protection system. And, you know, we often say homelessness isn't the problem. It's the result of the problem. And the problem is other service systems that fail. And what we're left with in the homelessness world is to try and pick up the pieces. And we sort of, so we can't just see this problem of we've got a person who's homeless, we need to house them. We've got to find a way to solve the systems that are forcing people into homelessness um, in the first place. And so in Australia, we've tried, and there's examples of both of those things happening. Um, so yeah, the, the, like it's, but in Australia, again, though, it's early days, right? Like we, we're still trying to implement this. Um, and we, we haven't got huge support from governments around Australia to do it. We've got patchy levels of commitment and investment and interest. Um, and in the United States, they haven't really got any government really support in some way. It's, mm. They've just been able to do it because government's so hard to change over there. They've had massive amounts of philanthropy that supported communities to do this. And that's how they got to, you know, 16 communities to ending and hot heaps more of reducing um, but Canada is probably more comparable to Australia than the US and Canada has two communities that have ended homelessness and a big part of it was because the government's backed what communities were doing and they worked in partnership and there are times when you need additional investment and there are times when you can make improvements without investments um, and I don't think there's a community in Australia that couldn't improve the way their homeless service system operates notwithstanding the fact that it's underfunded there's not enough houses all the rest of it there's some improvements that can be made. Excellent. So I was going to ask you about what it, what does the community require by way of resources and effort to, to get a project going and um, and make it start getting some results? Yeah, that's the million dollar question, Peter, because it's sort of it's different in every community and the more resources you've got, the more you can do. <clears throat> so it is a question of resources, right? Um, you can make improvements to your system, but even to make improvements, you need to find resources. But every system does have resources. It's just about finding um, extra, how to ways to leverage that and the rest of it. So at the end of the day, you need at least a project officer to start this work. Um, you can't just rely on everyone to do it extra on top of their day job. Uh, and then over time, to do more and more of the things that are needed to improve the system and drive reductions, you will need more resources at the system level as opposed to at the program and service provider level. Um, and how you rally those resources and redeploy those resources, sometimes you can grow the pie. You can find additional resources and extra outside partners, whether that's local government or business groups or philanthropy or government, state governments investing. Um, and hopefully one day we'll get federal government investing in this as well. Um, 
So that's kind of what we're campaigning for. But, you, you know, it's how long is a piece of string? You need a little bit to get going, but the more you can get, the more you can do. Yeah, and absolutely. So in terms of the, um, you mentioned before the buy name list. So I'm assuming from that you would have caseworkers or some form of support officers, project officers engaging with street people sleeping rough in, in the CBD, for example, and they're, and they're recording some sort of details about those people forming a relationship, presumably as well. And I think uh, another aspect might be a vulnerability index, but can you take us through, if you're a rough sleeper, say in Adelaide, what their experience with this program might look like? Yeah. Um, so if you're a person experiencing homelessness, um, what it might look like is often not very different to the rest of what people normally experiencing homelessness will look like. They'll still engage with the same outreach providers. They'll still engage with the same case managers, those sorts of things. Okay. So, and, and then in terms of building that trust and having, I guess, stuff recorded and, and that yeah. maybe you could talk yeah. us through some of that. Some of that. Yeah. So when, when you're like, person experiencing homelessness someone comes up to them on the street caseworker doing outreach uh, ordinarily they'll engage with them and say you know can we can we help you what do you need and, and try and get them involved in the system i guess what um the, the tool that you've got that's slightly different when you put a by name list in place is it's not sort of saying you know we're going to go out there and we're going to promise you housing because the, the housing as we know is, is it's few and far between and it's hard to get um, and i remember when i first got involved in this work one of the outreach workers i, I went out with said to me I feel like all my job is is to empower people to, to go out and get disempowered by a system that's broken. Um, wow. And so what we're trying to do is make sure that when outreach workers go and empower people to engage with the system, that the system then engages with them at, on their terms, right? And mm. and so to what we say is like a person-centred approach to trying to make the way the system change happens. And that starts with knowing the people in your system by name. Mm. It's Then it follows with what are their needs and then we have to make sure the system meets their needs. And at the moment, systems don't meet their needs, whether it's housing or support. And often it's the support that goes with the housing that's a bigger problem to make sure that, you know, it's, it's getting them aligned. There's never enough housing. There's never enough support. It's about making sure both go together and that they meet the individual needs of the individual person that you're trying to help. And not just at a point in time, but over time so that you're able to know, right, we're constantly getting people coming onto the list who have a brain injury. So how do we get better access to the NDIS for those people who've got an acquired brain injury? Or how do we get better access to mental health support services, not just for the two days after or the two months after we've gotten them into housing, but for the two years after we get them into housing, because that's what's needed for some people. They are so profoundly unwell that they will need multiple years worth of support. And when you know what they are, you can go and advocate for that and try and change the system to better meet that. And, and you know, that all sounds very Nirvana Kumbaya. But if you don't do that basic level of things at the system level, then you can help the people in your own service, but you're going to continue to have a broken system. So yeah. it's sort of, yeah. No, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm just, I was interested when you were saying that, whether we sometimes hear about no wrong door approaches, like from the client's perspective, they don't have to retell their stories to different SHS providers and go through the whole thing. We've still got a lot of, uh, opportunity uh, to do that better up here in the Northern Territory. But is, is it a similar notion that the person has that contact with an outreach worker and, and they're more of a no wrong door approach? 
Yeah, I think number one door is an approach and, an, and a goal, right? And the yeah. buy name list helps you get closer to that goal because when everyone comes into the system, you put them on the list, you do the assessment at the same time, you ask them to tell you all the traumatising information that you have to ask as an outreach worker and a case manager and get them to tell you your whole their whole life story and all the challenges they've had. Let's, for God's sake, ask them once and do it at the point of intake. And then, then once you've done it, share that information amongst other providers, get consent at the point at which you get them in to do it, to share that information with other providers. So then they don't have to retell their story every time they go to a different worker. They've got it in the system and the system being the by name list. And, and the by name list is just that high level of information. It's not a case management tool. It's just a tool to help the system work together. Okay. So... To give an example, like if you think about a hospital, right? When you rock up at a hospital, um, you go into the emergency department and you get triaged. It's not first in, first served. It's who's the most vulnerable. We need to triage at the front end of our homeless system. And then when they leave the emergency department, they go into one of the wards. They tell you, they take their patient management system and they share the information. You don't need to call the ward and go, oh, we're sending someone, have they arrived? And then, you know, the ward calls back to the emergency department and says, oh, where's this person? No, you connect them to the ward. And then when they leave the ward and they go and get pathology or something else, it's all connected. And that's a hospital administration system. The homelessness system needs an administration system, not one single case management system, just a way to connect things up a bit more. And that's what the biodynamics get you, gets you. And the other thing about the by name list as well is that it's community owned. So when government owns the list, it becomes about government priorities, whether that's child protection or issuing warrants and police or no, this is a list only for the purposes of housing. So that's why consent at the front end is much more likely to be given, um, almost always given. <laughs> um, and it's also when you say to that person who's on the street, please engage with me. It's not necessarily saying, I'm going to give you housing. It's about saying, Peter, if you tell us your story and your information, we've got an idea of who's in this system and what the support needs are. And that helps me go and plan and advocate for what this system needs. And I like a couple of the times I've been on outreach, the people would like, don't worry about me, Peter, go and talk to somebody else. They're more vulnerable. And I'm like, no, no, I want your story as well because it helps the other person as well. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, one of the things I'm, that really interests me about this, uh, this work is it seems to be very much driven from the ground up. So community, almost community by community. And I, I'm imagining in some communities you'll have support from local government as well, whether it be like city of Melbourne or, or in Adelaide or, or Brisbane, wherever that might be. Um, and I, and I think when I listen to a lot of advocacy nationally around housing and homelessness, it tends to be a little bit more top down in terms of systemic changes need to happen and more funding and so on. But I do like the fact that this is, is, is um, can be owned and, and uh, I guess, implemented by individual communities that are committed to this. Uh, so how does how does a community get involved and if what does it take in terms of leadership perhaps and the sorts of participants in a given community um, to, to really get this off the ground and, and make something of it? Um, it requires one or two people who are willing to champion it. Like it really starts with that. If you can change one or two people's mind and they can go and change two or three other people's mind and then they'll get together and work together, you can change a whole community. And, and we've, we're changing community by community and hopefully one day we'll change the country, right? So it's, it does start at one or two people who are willing to champion this work, to encourage people to take the training, to understand that we can't do this alone. We have to do it as a system. We have to work collaboratively together. We need to new, find new ways of working together. We need to use technology and data like the by name list to help us do that. But ultimately, 
it's pretty simple. It starts with one or two people who are willing to get one or two other people in a room, start the conversation, rally the resources, you know, convince different people. And that is grassroots, as you absolutely rightly say. It's totally grassroots. And local government can be really powerful in that. Rotary groups have been really helpful in getting some things going. You know, like it can start anywhere. Um, and part of the challenge is, is the specialist homelessness system is so overwhelmed and overburdened by the sheer weight of demand that they have to meet for all forms of homelessness and they're in a bad situation getting worse. It's hard for them to step out of that water that's boiling and realise that, you know, we've got to do something different here. Um, so it's, it's the allies that are going to help the specialist homeless system to do something different. Yeah, that's I think that's, that, that's, uh, that's a really uh, powerful observation, isn't it? And we know that uh, people are so busy case managing an ever-increasing load and um, doing the best they can and doing some incredible work, yeah, but still an increasing number of people that they can't assist in a system that's not yeah. working I was intrigued as well. That's been piled on. Yeah, absolutely. I was intrigued uh, with some of the things that you've been able to do through the Advanced to Zero database. I know Professor Paul Flato and others have looked at health outcomes and healthcare utilisation. So you must be really getting some pretty good insights out of that um, process. Yeah, um, the the data is really powerful. The stories that it can tell you, right? So it, it you know when you collect that consistent information across the system, you can say what's happening in your system. You can say what the needs are. So, for example, on on health indicators, for example, we know that you're forty times more likely to have PTSD if you're experiencing rough sleeping homelessness than the general population. You're twenty times more likely to have Hep C. You're you know seven times more likely to have depression. Um, you know, anyway, so we collect that kind of data and we can show not just that at a point in time, but how it's changing month by month. And some communities can put that on a website and say, what is the, what is the trauma community doing to help us? Or we can break it down by this many people are formerly veterans. So what is the veterans community doing to help us with the four or five people? Because it's usually a very small number. So if you can solve it for veterans and then you can solve it for young people and then solve it for the women and then, you know, you, you break it up by cohort and you say, right, what, who is it that can help with these different groups of people and what's the drivers for these different groups of people and you're kind of getting a whole of community, whole of government response and it doesn't just sit on the shoulders of a couple of case managers in the specialist homelessness system. No, absolutely right. The other thing I thought was really interesting was uh, the, these projects with the different communities have online reporting, online monitoring, talking about how many people have maybe entered homelessness, how many have left and how many have been housed. Why is it so important to have that online real-time data? Um, so if you go back to my experiences in government, um, not, not revealing too many confidences here, but the data when it's good goes out with a press release and the data when it's bad, sometimes there's problems with the, uh, the methodology or the counting or, you know, it's still being tallied and, you know, the data needs to be FOI'd. And like, that's just not a process that has any transparency or, you know, and, and that is a common story across most of the country. And even then the data's crap. Like it's just point in time counts and point in time counts are next to useless in telling you anything useful, but they're the best that we've got outside of the census, which is also an estimate. Um, and the census is, you know, we it's five years old at the moment. So having a real time list that tells you what's going on and then making it transparently available is an incredibly powerful accountability mechanism to say, is our system getting better or worse? Um, why is what are these drivers um, and you know often like we're overwhelmed by the nature of the problem of that 
whole homelessness problem, housing crisis, rental crisis, home ownership crisis. We just keep adding all these crises together, put them all together and go to government and say, we need $12 billion of housing investment this year or it's not going to, you know, and that's that no government can grapple with that in the short term. We've, so what we're trying to do is break it up and go, you know, right up into tiny little bits and go, actually, in this community right now, there's actually 40 people sleeping rough. How is it we could find 40 beds? Like, we don't want one hotel opened up because that's not a hotel. That's not a home. That's a bed and a hotel. What we need is 40 homes um, and and changes the way community thinks about what they can do. And, oh, it's only 40 homes. What can we do? You know, like, and, and, and if it's 40 and it's going up to 50, then there needs to be something done. And if it's 40 going down to 30, then it needs to be like, what are we learning? Let's do more of that. Like, um, so it's, it's, in, it's useful for accountability, useful for improvement, useful Absolutely. for how you see the nature of the problem. Yeah, there's nowhere to hide. I like that. You know, yeah. it's saying it as it is. Um, very much. Data so. goes up, good or bad. You know? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. So in 2021, you were awarded a Fulbright scholarship um, to go to the United States and to Europe to look at um, at some of this work around homelessness, rough sleeping. Um, so congratulations on that. First of all, I'm really keen to hear a little bit about um, that that process. I think you're halfway through in terms of the a program at the moment yeah fellowship what are you hoping to sorry churchill fellowship what are you what are you yeah. hoping to achieve well um like at a high level to figure out what it takes to end homelessness in australia like because we haven't done it yet no there's not a single community in australia that has ended homelessness there's some that have gotten really close for particular subpopulations like you know veterans rough sleeping in one community or you know those sorts of things and i think it i think that's an achievement even though that's a very small number of people you know if we were to have a community in australia who could demonstrate they have ended veterans homelessness and sustain that that's a big deal and i think then you've got to expand and build on that and there are communities in the US and Canada have done it, which is why I went there first. But there are, you know, Finland, for example, has ended family homelessness. Um, and I'm keen, so I'm going to go to Finland on my second visit and go to Europe and um, the UK and learn a little bit more because those countries are much more comparable to Australia in some in some senses. And, and the US and Canada is very comparable to Australia in another senses. So it's really at a high level to figure out what it takes to end homelessness. And, and at the moment, we have a theory of change as the Advanced to Zero movement called the Advanced to zero methodology and it sets out all the different things we think that we are required to end homelessness based on what has successfully been done in the US but also learning for what the Canadians have done also learning what's happened in Europe and around housing first and other things put that all together that's our theory of change for Australia that's what the communities in Australia are working on and the the, the great opportunity of the Churchill Fellowship for me is to go and test that with all the leaders and other, other places and add to it and build the resources and the connections that we need to provide the training and support and capacity building that the Australian Alliance acts as a sort of funnel for from around the world and channels that into the communities that are trying to do this work have you had any so it's kind of lots of work a huge opportunity yeah, absolutely. Sorry. No, that's, that's fantastic. Now, I was just going to ask, um, you're halfway through, but have you had any uh, insights that you're in a position to share at this stage? Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of three kind of key insights so far for me. One is we're on the right path. Keep doing what we're doing. This is absolutely leading stuff around the Advanced to Zero campaign, the methodology we've developed. Um, two other kind of key insights for me would be health and homelessness need to be integrated so much more. 
um, and the US does it really, really well. And they do it well because they don't have a social safety net like Australia does. They don't have like an income support system. Um, they don't have a health system that's universally accessible, at least on paper, like Australia's is. Like their health system is so inequitable and their income support system is so patchy that the safety net in that country is the homelessness system. Uh, and they have integrated healthcare into it in a way that is leading. Like, so it's not a great outcome of why they've done it, but what they're doing is something we can really learn from about integrating healthcare much more into homelessness services. Um, if we want housing to be sustainable, if we want housing to be sticky, if people aren't to cycle back in and out of homelessness, we need to get better at addressing their health needs uh, and preventing housing, uh, health, sorry, preventing health from becoming the reason why people lose their housing in the first place. So insight number two and insight number three from the Churchill Fellowship, I think, is we are missing a type of housing in Australia that is absolutely needed to end homelessness. And that type of housing is what we call permanent supportive housing. It's the housing that comes with support on site or permanently or, you know, like that you've got a permanent ability to have support provided. Um, and they, you know, the common grounds are one type of permanent supportive housing that, you know, Roseanne helped bring to Australia, Roseanne, the Thinkman residents we talked about before. And they just have a permanent supportive housing system over there. So not just one or two buildings, but a system that works together to support the people who are chronically homeless and have got a long-term experience. And if you just try and take people who've been on the street in Australia and put them into general public housing, it'll fail and they'll be back out on the street. And, and we don't have an option available for them most of the time that provides a sense of community with support on site. Um, and so we need to build more permanent supportive housing. And whilst permanent supportive housing is more expensive than public housing or social housing, um, it is cheaper than leaving people on the street. And we know that with all the studies that have been done. Sure. And would a youth lawyer model be similar to that, where you have that supportive as well? Okay. Youth is a supportive housing model for young people. Okay. FOIA, right. sorry, is a supportive housing model for young people. Yep. Common ground is for chronic rough sleeping adults in inner cities a lot of the time. But it's not the only, they're not the only two models. There's plenty. And we need, you know, we need all of the different models. And we need models that meet the needs of the people that we're trying to help, that the mm -hmm. by tell us that are needed. So that's a huge gap in Australia. Sure. And um, it's, it's not really being advocated for. Like when you see the debates around, what we need for what we need we need more social housing yes we need to better fund our specialist homelessness services but we also need supportive housing yeah it makes a lot of sense and uh i understand having a conference later this year with all of the participating communities across australia you want to tell us a bit about that yeah we're going to launch we're going to launch the advanced to zero campaign so we've been doing it for a few years but we never really launched it and covid um has impact on our ability to get together. So one of the things that's been really useful in the United States is that the communities come together and learn and share and, and figure out what it takes to end homelessness in a, in a city area or in outer, outer suburbs or in a regional area. And we share that information across a community of practice and they get together. They were before COVID twice a year. And we were starting to do that as the advanced to zero movement in Australia. And so we're going to do that for the first time, get together in a place, share what it takes to do this work and to launch the campaign at a summit in Brisbane in October. So we'd love for there to be a great delegation of people from the Territory to come and join us in Brisbane. Very exciting indeed. And um, in terms of uh, people who might be watching us thinking, you know, I'd like to learn a little bit more about the methodology of advanced to zero um, and the VI SPDAT or the vulnerability index and so forth. How, do, how, how can they, what, what can they do to, to pick up a bit more about this? Yeah, there's a little bit of information on our website. We have some training available. Um, so you can and subscribe to our mailing list on the website and you'll, you'll find out about all the sorts of things that we're doing. Uh, but 
I think part of it is just getting a group of people together in, in a community in the Northern Territory and saying, we want to do this. And we're going to run it, rally a bit of resources to hire a project officer to do it. And whether that's in Alice Springs, which I would love, my old hometown, or Catherine, or Darwin, or Palmerston, or wherever it might be, a community, a local government area generally, that's willing to get together and say, we're going to trial this um, and build it out from there. And it's sort of, it takes community leaders to do it and, and people interested and willing. But yeah, and, we're, and as the Australian Alliance, we're here to walk alongside you and support those kind of community efforts. Fantastic. Well, we are, um, I guess, in the process of working through a homelessness strategy up here in the Northern Territory or a homelessness strategy refresh. So one of the things I found about this conversation, it was really thought provoking, thinking, well, we just can't keep doing what we're doing and expecting um, just one action, like pouring a bit of extra money in was going to fix everything. And um, we've got to look at different ways, haven't we? And I think if... Um, this methodology is making a real difference to the lives of people by putting uh, by housing more people or directing them into the supports that they need and preventing homelessness or making it less rare and the other uh, what was it rare frequent more rare and brief and non-recurring exactly thank you yeah. um three good words to remember there so look thank you for um thank you i guess for challenges for in thinking well how what are we doing at the moment to tackle homelessness uh, are there better ways or other ways we can do it? and especially learn from each other and communities around the world that have actually done this so david thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure right. sharing the couch with you today you too cheers for having thank me you, david you've been listening to episode 11 of sharing the couch by nt shelter opinions expressed by guests on sharing the couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of nt shelter or host peter mcmillan thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe